and we in a sense start where we uh, we come back to where we started uh, back to chapter five just prior to chapter six so before we look further at this uh, let me pray for us heavenly father thank you for your word uh, please help us to understand it this morning and to be encouraged by it help me to be clear and give us hearts to understand and to live out more fully our Christian discipleship before you. Amen. Well, the present uh, COVID-19 pandemic brings with it a sense of helplessness, even hopelessness for many people. Uh, for all our medical science and technology, we don't have a vaccine as of yet, which we can immunize uh, against uh, the virus. All we can do is stay out of the virus's way. Uh, the response of even the rich, affluent, well-resourced, developed countries is limited to isolation. When faced with COVID-19, uh, we are in the grip of a force stronger than ourselves. The first century church was very much feeling such helplessness. They were a small persecuted minority. They faced aggressive forces far stronger than themselves, uh, the Roman authorities and the Jewish community. And yet the book of Revelation is written to ensure that this sense of helplessness does not morph into hopelessness. In an earthly sense, uh, they were powerless, but their lives were in the hands of the one who is all powerful. And the purpose of the letter therefore, is to assure them and us that God is still in control. Even though it may not seem like it from our earthly point of view, uh, God is achieving his good redemptive goals. In the last two sermons, uh, we have felt the weight of living in a world under God's judgment. Remember back in chapter six, we encountered the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and they were unleashed on the world with the breaking of each seal of a scroll, and they brought harrowing suffering and hardship. Then in chapter 16, we had the seven plagues triggered by the outpouring of seven bowls of God's wrath and they brought global catastrophic disaster. And we have seen that the devastation brought by these disasters are all from God's hand. It is part of his judgment on a rebellious world. And so it is fitting that we go back today to chapter five to see where it all started and the figure behind it all. For it is Christ and the events of that first Easter that proved to be the launch point for everything that then happens in Revelation after chapter 5. You see, it is the cross that triggers this era of God's salvation and final judgment. Uh, back in chapter 4, John, the letter's author, is invited in a vision into the throne room of heaven. If you like, he is allowed privileged access to the heavenly court. And there he is granted the divine perspective on these earthly events, which will typify the period 
between Christ's first and second coming. And so now, as chapter 5 opens, John is still in the throne room of heaven at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. It is the Lord God who is holding a scroll. And this is not any old scroll. Uh, this is the blueprint for the establishment of God's eternal kingdom. Uh, the scroll contains God's plans of judgment and salvation for our world. The salvation of God's people depends on it. And we see that the scroll is sealed with seven seals. Uh, the seals divide the scroll into seven sections, and each section is guarded by an individual seal. And the scroll can only be opened one section at a time as the seals are removed. And the opening of the scrolls into effect of God's kingdom purposes detailed in the scroll. It enables the contents of the scroll to become reality. And yet the seals act as a restrictive security measure. They can only be broken and the scroll's contents read by a duly authorised reader. And so the cry goes out to find one who is authorised to open the seals and to enact God's salvation purposes. At verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And it's at this point that a crisis emerges. Verse 3. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Unless a duly qualified person is found, all is lost. God's plans will falter. His kingdom will fail. It is the cause of great sorrow and angst. It's the counsel of utter despair and hopelessness. If no one worthy is found, then the world slides deeper and deeper into an evil darkness. There is no prospect of evil ever being judged or justice done. There is no avenue of forgiveness with God, only a growing dread in every heart of facing God's awful judgment when we die. There is no hope of life beyond this life. There is no assurance of a new renewed world. In short, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. in an eternal sense. You see, it would take someone of absolute power 
and absolute purity to save humanity. A power because it involves uh, the judgment of God's evil enemies and the salvation of God's people. A purity because without it, he falls under the very judgment that he is seeking to save others from. Not one of us is all-powerful and all-pure. And that means that we can't save humanity, but it also means that we can't save ourselves. That no attempt at morality or religion will make any headway. No ordinary human in all of history has been found worthy to break the seals on the scroll and to enact God's saving purposes. Fortunately, the crisis is, resol is resolved. A figure is found who embodies both perfect power and purity. Firstly, uh, the figure of the powerful lion, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scrolls and its seven seals. I do find the unity of the Bible very encouraging. It really strengthens my confidence in the Bible being the word of God. You see, the Bible contains 66 books, and these were written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years. And yet, there is an amazing unity and continu continuity between them. And of course, we know why this is. Those human authors were all guided by the Holy Spirit. And as a result of his work, Promises and prophecies are all perfectly fulfilled in due course. So like other New Testament letters, Revelation delights in joining the dots. And this image of the lion dates all the way back to a prophetic blessing in Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis 49, we find Jacob aged and close to death. And as he puts his affairs in order, he utters the following blessing to his son, Judah. Genesis 49, verse 9. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. And in the fullness of time, this prophetic blessing came to pass. The tribe of Judah became the kingly line, holding the scepter of regal power. King David would arise from Judah, and a thousand years after him, also the king of kings. Jesus himself. And of course, Jesus is the one to whom the scepter belongs. He is the powerful lion king. And ultimately, Jesus will be the one to whom the nations bow in obedience. 
The book of Revelation communicates its message, of course, using pictures and symbols and visions. And the lion seems a fitting symbol for the person who is to fulfill this cosmic role. Uh, if you look at uh, national emblems, you will find that countries usually choose animals that convey a sense of might and power. Uh, the English chose lions, and not just one, but three. And the three lions can be traced back as far as the royal crest of King Richard the Lionheart in the 12th century. And today it is used in the coat of arms for the England's national football team and the cricket team. And doesn't it just stir your heart? Or maybe not. Uh, the Australians, on the other hand, chose a jumping marsupial and a flightless bird. What were they thinking? Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the powerful lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. But the one who is worthy to open the scrolls is not just the powerful lion, but also the pure lamb. Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. 800 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had foretold of a suffering servant of the Lord. And this suffering servant would forfeit his life to ransom his people from their sins. Uh, this is how Isaiah described him in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted. Not only his mouth. To the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Uh, we know from the Old Testament law that the sacrificial lamb had to be without blemish. And as the Old Testament, Old Testament history progresses, the focus progressively narrows. Will the nation of Israel be the faithful servant to the Lord without any blemish? Uh, no. Uh, sadly, they are faithless and fall under judgment. Uh, will the remnants of the nation who return from exile be faithful and without blemish? No, uh, they too fall short of the glory of God. And finally, the focus is narrowed to one man, the true Israelite. Will he succeed where all before him have failed? Will the story of the second Adam be any different to that of the first Adam? Jesus carries the weight of our eternal destiny on his shoulders. You see, at any point in his earthly life, if Jesus had sinned just once, he would have been declared unworthy to open the scroll. He would have disqualified himself to be the perfectly pure sacrificial lamb. Uh, we tend to think, Ah, it was easy for Jesus. He was the son of God. And yet we fail to see that Jesus lived his life with only the resources that you or I have. In taking on human flesh, he didn't just lay aside his glory. He also divested himself of his divine powers. Any power the spirit granted him 
uh, to perform miracles, he used to serve others, but never to serve himself. And that was the dark motive behind Satan's attempt to have him turn stones into bread in the desert. And yet Jesus saw the trick and he refused. Jesus was all too aware of his utter dependence on the Father. And we get a glimpse of his struggle to live that perfectly pure life. In Hebrews 5 verse 7, it says this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. His desire to live a perfect, godly, God-honoring life expressed itself in an earnest prayer life. Uh, Incidentally, as followers of Christ, uh, do you want to live a godly life? Uh, Of course we say yes, but did you see what is required? Part of what is required. If the Son of God needed to cry out with prayers and petitions for God's help, how much more do we do? You see, it's an encouragement for us to prioritize prayer. But there is also a stimulus to our prayer lives in Revelation chapter 5. Did you notice how our prayers are described? Verse 8. The four living creatures... And the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a bowl and golden, so each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In the New Testament, a saint is anyone who trusts in Christ. And do you see, our prayers are precious to God. They are a precious, fragrant offering. And God delights to receive them. So, uh, Christ achieved what we could never achieve. Christ walked the path of blemishless perfection. He never once deviated, not even slightly. Uh, 1 Peter 2 verse 22 says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. His perfect life qualified him to approach the cross as the pure sacrificial lamb. And whilst the struggle to live a sinless life for 33 years had been challenging, the final act of supreme obedience was no less taxing. As the shadow of the cross looms, so the pressure to bypass it intensifies. We see him praying in Mark 14, verse 36, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. When you've been a Christian for a while, it is easy, I would say, to lose a sense of the true drama of the cross. Uh, Through familiarity, we can fail to appreciate the stress and the agony associated with Christ's journey to the cross. Just imagine if those sleeping disciples had woken in the morning 
only to find the Garden of Gethsemane empty. Jesus had buckled under the strain and slipped away in the night. Imagine if on that hill outside Jerusalem that following day, there had only been two crosses instead of three. Today, we would still be weeping because no one worthy would have been found to open the scroll and to look inside. Today, we would be staring down the barrels of eternity, not only helpless, but hopeless. And yet Jesus, he didn't slip away in the night. Jesus didn't call down legions of angels as his bodyguards. Jesus went as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he didn't open his mouth. He drank the bitter cup to the end. Before that first Easter, no one had been found worthy to open the seals of the scroll. But with the resurrection of Jesus, heaven erupts with ecstatic praise at his achievements. Verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus was the lamb who was slain, past tense, but now is living and enthroned in heaven. And with his death, resurrection and ascension, Jesus was proven worthy to break the seals on the scrolls. He set in motion the process of salvation and judgment that will climax in the renewal of all things. And therefore, the song of heaven is our song today. Verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. We can sing it with thankfulness and deep gratitude that Jesus is the powerful Lamb and the powerful Lion and the pure Lamb. That without him, we would face a future of hopelessness and despair. And yet with him, through faith in him, we have a sure and certain hope of life in the new heavens and the new earth. And so this morning, we have every reason to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, the lamb who was slain, who now lives, and whom one day we will meet face to face. Let me pray. Lord God, uh, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the powerful lion, but also the pure lamb, the one who at such great cost to himself took on himself our punishments. He sacrificed himself willingly so that we could escape your judgments. Uh, thank you for this Resurrection Sunday morning. 
when we remember his vindication as the powerful lion and the pure lamb, the one who was slain, but now is living and is seated in the throne room of heaven and whom one will one day return. Help us, therefore, we pray each day uh, to remain humble, uh, to not live each day in our own strength, but as people who are trusting Christ. Help us to be prayerful, uh, to cry out for your strength and enabling, to live godly lives which honour you and delight you, uh, to live lives which, uh, where we are growing as Christians, uh, putting off the old self and putting on the new self like new shoes. Therefore, please, we pray, help us this Easter to be invigorated, to continue to live as your people to your glory. Amen.